you come, uh, you come to an occasion like this, and you can understand uh, Acts chapter 20. Uh, when Paul is in Ephesus, and he's about to leave to go to Jerusalem, and he has a final word for people whom he loves deeply. And so he preaches, and 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 a poor young teenager falls three stories to the ground from a window, and everybody rushes downstairs to see what's happened with this poor young fellow, and Paul, sort of have this image in my head of Paul resting his head on the boy's chest, this is one possible scenario, saying, There's a heartbeat, let's go back upstairs. And so they go back upstairs, and he keeps preaching. (laughs) Going on and on and on. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. But rather, and maybe this will be surprising to you, I'm going to keep it to three points. (laughs) Yes, Jim, I will finish. Yes. Three points that I think are timely, actually, for, for, for me, for Barb, for you as a church. Uh, it's very interesting how this letter comes to a conclusion, uh, as Paul, never having been with these Roman Christians, at least most of them, he certainly knows quite a lot of them, some three dozen of them or more, as reflected in the names that are listed earlier in the chapter, But as Paul comes to the end of this this letter, concludes this letter, hopeful that he's going to be able to go to Rome, these are his last words. These are his last words. And there is first a word of warning, and then there is a word of hope, and then there is finally a song. A word of warning, a word of hope, and a song. Verses 17 and 18 are the warning, or the admonition. The word in the text is translated appeal. I appeal to you, brothers. But it's, but it's a warning. It's a sober warning. It's an admonition, a sober admonition. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, or literally their own bellies. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It's really, a, I think, a striking passage, and and a word that really, I think, has tremendous implications for us in this culture, and, and it's a word of counsel that I'd suggest that you all take very, very seriously as we're in the process of looking for a pastor. What kind of person, what kind of person do we want? The church today is, is enamored of growth Uh, there, are, there are pieces of direct mail that I get as a pastor virtually every week promoting some seminar, some book, 
some author, some speaker that will give to me the key, the secret, the technique needed to grow, to fill seats, to get bigger. Our whole culture is enamored of bigness. And it's deep in the fabric of who we are as Americans and even, I'm afraid, as American Christians to think that success is defined in terms of numbers. That faithfulness This is the first time, I think, and this is the only period of time in which I've lived, so I can't really know this for sure, but it seems to me that this is the first time in the history of the church when faithfulness has been measured by size. Do you know that John Owen, who was arguably the most intelligent, the greatest, most thoughtful, peerless of the English Puritans, never pastored a church larger than this church. Never pastored a church larger than a church of 200 people. We're not quite 200 people. Sometimes when we get into the season, we bump up against that number. Just for perspective. Our culture is a culture that is addicted to size, to bigness, to growth, to technique, What does Paul encourage these folks to have as their focus? What does he caution them about? He cautions them about folks who speak well. Smooth talk. He cautions them about people who can can flatter. He cautions them about this. If you flip over a page, if you read what Paul says about his ministry in 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Paul reminds the Corinthians when he came to the Corinthians, he didn't come that way. He didn't come using lofty speech. He didn't come engaging in, in grand philosophical speculation. He came with nothing in his hands, one bullet in his pistol, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, did Paul employ rhetorical devices? You bet he did. Was Paul wise and discerning as he anticipated questions and interacted with those questions and responded to those questions? 
All you have to do is read Romans to get that Paul understood how to engage people. But at the center of that engagement was this. The cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And him crucified. Jesus Christ. The hope of the world. Jesus Christ. The only hope you have. What is your only hope in life and in death? Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. That I belong not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own precious blood has delivered me from the dominion of the devil. What is your hope today? And as you look forward, what do you want to have be the centerpiece of this church. Paul tells these folks not not to be distracted by someone who speaks well, who, who can flatter, but he admonishes them to keep their eyes fixed on the doctrine they have been taught. Verse 17, the doctrine they've been taught. What's the doctrine they've been taught? It's these first 11 chapters, isn't it? And what is it that is contained in that doctrine? I want to review the whole letter for you. Yes, I do. (laughs) What is that doctrine? What is it that Paul wants for these folks to have at the center of their vision? What does he want for them to have as a fixture, a thing that is unmoved, that is unshakable, that will never go away? The content of these first 11 chapters. The reality of sin. That's where he begins his gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel, the good news, is the power of God for the salvation. Salvation in that big, comprehensive sense. Not just you and your little story in the midst of this vast, uh, vast, vast eternal space or this, this time that flows from moment to moment. Not just your little story, but this grand, grand story at the center of which is Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of that gospel. And where does he begin his discussion of that gospel? The wrath of God is being revealed against every form of ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. And he goes on to expose it among Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, he goes on to expose it among the Jews. Every form of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the judgment of God, the wrath of God is being and will be visited upon every form of ungodliness. You don't want to hear that. You don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. And When I'm having dinner with a friend, the last thing in the world I want to talk about is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Why? Because it's a hard word. Folks, as I've said to you countless times, 
It is a very hard word that deep in your bones you want to believe. You want to believe that there is someone at home in the universe. That this world in which we live is not an accident. The random collision of molecule against molecule, atom against atom. You want to believe that you're something more than a fortunate composition of neurons and electrons and flesh and bone and sinew. You want to believe that you're something more than that. Deep in your bones, you want to believe that just as every form of artwork reflects the brilliance of the artist, you as something brilliant and extraordinary and unimaginable, Deep in your bones, you want to know that you've been made by a God of beauty and loveliness. But you also want to believe that you've been made by a God who is good. And when you begin to affirm that that God who inhabits this universe, who has formed and shaped you, who has made you after his own image, when you take that next step and you acknowledge that he is good, you have crossed over a line in which righteousness and justice, because of goodness, must prevail. And wherever there is injustice or unrighteousness, know this, The God of heaven and earth who is good will make it right. He will make it right. And you want to know that. And you want to believe it. Deep in your bones. You want to know it and you want to believe it until it comes to you. And when the goodness of a good God shows up on your doorstep and that good God begins to ask you for an accounting of your life. You realize, don't you, that you're in trouble. Because while there may be some good stuff there, deep in your bones, you know the little bit of good stuff just ain't big enough to whitewash the reality of your own sin and failing. And you know where Paul goes with the gospel after in those first three chapters he describes the reality and the pervasiveness of sin. He goes to the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verses 21 and following. As I've said a hundred times, this densely packed paragraph in which the apostle Paul describes the core and the heart, the glory and the wonder of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, without sin, 
satisfying all of the righteousness of his Father. Not having to die for his own sin. Not having to face the wrath of God for his own unrighteousness. Jesus Christ becomes the sin-bearing substitute for the unrighteous. You wonder what the cross is all about. We wear them around our necks. Watching the Ryder Cup, I see Patrick Reed. He's got this little choker around his neck. There's a cross on it. We wear these things. We stick them up in churches. What is the cross about? The cross is the center, the core, the heart, the substance of the gospel. That Jesus, the sinless one, became the sin-bearing substitute for those who would look to him and in him. Trusting him, no forgiveness, cleansing, acceptance with the infinite personal God who is really there, the God of heaven and earth. And so Paul, after talking about faith in chapter 4, faith, the empty hands of faith, Francis Schaeffer used to, used to describe it, faith, this looking to God, looking to Jesus to do for me what I'm powerless to do for myself. Paul then goes on to say to those who have done such a thing, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by means of this faith, because of the work of Christ, we have peace with God. Look, let's just ask the question, all of us. Can you put your head on the pillow tonight and sleep in peace, knowing that if you, wake, if you don't wake up the next morning, you will stand in the presence of this infinite personal God who is really there. Can you put your head on the pillow and sleep in peace tonight, knowing that if that were to happen, your peace would not be taken away? There is a place to go for that kind of peace. And it's to the cross, it's to the doctrine that Paul has set before these Romans and tells them that they not lose sight of. That's what you want to look for. Paul then moving beyond the cross to to talk about growth and and change and transformation, as you know. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, talks about this incredible thing that through this cross, these Gentiles have been gathered in so that now both Jew and Gentile, brought in by the same Christ, brought in by the same instrumentality of faith, are one people, a new people, where those old distinctions go away. And then he moves into chapter 12. 
And we remember, don't we? It's recent enough. We remember that as you move into chapter 12, there are three things that begin to emerge. You ask, where does this Christian life lead? What does it mean to be embraced by Jesus, to love Jesus, to be incorporated into his body? What does it mean to be in the church? It means that you move in the direction of real change and real transformation. That's some sort of external technique-y thing but a real change. And what emerges from that change are these three things. Chapter 12, love. Love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for people who are like you. If you have love for people who are part of the same club you have love for one another across all of those distinctions. Folks, where are you going to find that in the world? You're not going to find it in the world. You're going to find it in one place. Imperfectly expressed, but by God's grace, really and truly expressed. You're going to find it in the church. Look at your world. Look at the divisions. Look at the hatred. Look at the animosities. We get focused on a couple of spots in the world. But the deep, deep hatreds and animosities born out of century and century and century of conflict and difference and antagonism, how is all of that overcome? Look at the scriptures. Look at the picture that is painted of people gathered from every race and nation and tribe and tongue with all of those distinctions obliterated, falling at the feet of Jesus to delight in him and worship him and adore him through all eternity. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and into chapters 6 and 7. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come simply to give you an example or a model of what needs to be done. He came to live for you, die for you, so that he might change you. So that you might be able to walk the path that he has set before you to walk. A walk in which love predominates, leading to a unity that transcends All of these distinctions. And then the thing that flows out of that is mission. A concern for the nations. That the nations would hear of this immeasurable, unfathomable love of God. In which he, through his son, gathers to himself a united people. Clothed and robed and permeated in and by. The love which the Father has for the Son. And which the Son has For the Father, and which the Holy Spirit enjoys and delights in. Love and unity and mission. I have to tell you something that is not self-congratulatory. It's not. I had one of the highest compliments paid to me in my entire life this last week. Someone said to me, this is the first time I have heard the gospel preached in an inclusive way way. It's always, always been about us. We're right. They're wrong. I can't begin to tell you how much that means to me. That somehow, through these poor efforts, 
something of the beauty of what Jesus is after managed to seep out. That's what he's after. And that's the gospel that Paul does not want these folks to lose sight of. My prayer for the next pastor is that he will love this gospel and that this gospel will bleed out of him. Whatever the packaging is, folks, whatever the packaging is, that this gospel will seep out of his pores for your benefit, for your good. That's the warning. Don't be distracted, but remember this doctrine that you've been taught. And what this reflects is, isn't it, it reflects the fact that we're in the midst of a conflict. I mean, it reflects the fact that we're in the midst of a battle. If Paul has to admonish these folks and warn these folks that there are dangers out there, that tells you that we're in the midst of a conflict, that there is something that we need to be aware of. And way back in the series that we did on Peter, we talked about that conflict, that there is more here than meets the eye. You remember Peter on the night of his betrayal was warned by Jesus. Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter, Satan has sought to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. When you return, strengthen your brothers. Satan has sought to sift you like wheat. Folks, there is more on the other side of the veil than we realize. We are in a conflict We are in a battle. We are in a war. That battle, that conflict, goes back to Genesis 3.15. You gave me a reminder of it, September 12th. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Hostility is going to characterize life, and the hostility exists between the people of God and the people of unbelief. And a major player in that hostility is the person of the accuser. Together with all of his minions who oppose the person of God, who oppose the purposes of God, and who oppose the people of God. And it's real. And Paul has that very much in in the background as he writes these verses and as he comes to verse 20 of chapter 16. I got to tell you, I got to tell you, this is a bit of poetic justice. To finish on this particular Sunday, the book of Romans, with the Apostle Paul saying to the Romans and saying to you and me, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Sweet. A sweet providence. You know what Paul has in mind. This is the word of hope, isn't it? In the midst of this conflict, 
Know this. Embrace this. Understand this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's written 2,000 years ago. You know what else was written 2,000 years ago? Revelation chapter 22. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I'm coming very soon. Three times Jesus says it in the last chapter of the last book of your Bibles. Doesn't seem like it was soon, does it? I think I've read, I think I've read a dozen commentaries on this verse in the last week. I want one of these people, way smarter than I will ever be, who've forgotten more in the last five minutes than I've known my entire life, I want one of those people to tell me when soon is. And they don't. So I'm going to tell you when soon is. Very soon. (laughs) When we've been there, 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. When you've been there 10,000 times 10,000 years, and you look back on this little stretch of time between Jesus speaking those words through John and Jesus speaking these words through Paul, you will say, it really was soon. This little stretch of time between now and the final consummation of all things. When Jesus returns in glory and together with his church crushes your adversary under his feet. When Jesus at that return raises you in fullness body and soul, to be united with him in glory, in a kingdom that will have no end, a kingdom that is ruled and governed by the prince of righteousness, a king who is unlike any other king who has ever lived, who does not ask his citizens to serve him, but who himself says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. When you after 10,000 times 10,000 years reflect on this riddle stretch of time, you will say, it was soon. It was soon. Be patient, folks. That's what the revelation is all about. It's not about schemes and charts and all that other silliness. Get rid of your charts. Get rid of your schemes. The book of the revelation is about patient endurance through years of tribulation until the king returns in glory. And when he returns, he will conquer the last and greatest enemies that you have, death and the devil, forever 
banished so that you might dwell with him in unimaginable glory. And Paul ends this letter with a song. A song. I tell you, it is, it is a striking thing how much singing there is in the scriptures. You know where the first song is? Genesis 1. God gets to the end of his creative activity. He gets to the end of day six, and he wants to create the man and the woman in his own image. And if you look in your Bibles at Genesis 1, it's no longer narrative. It is now set off from the rest of the text. It is a poem. When God creates the man and the woman, he sings. When God creates the woman at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis and brings the woman to the man, the man mimics God and he sings. When Pharaoh and all of his nasty army are crushed in the Red Sea, there's a song. When Deborah vanquishes Balak, there's a song. David writes poems that are to be sung, celebrating the great works of God. Paul comes to the end of this letter, and he wants to sing. And what he wants to sing about is the incredible wisdom of the glorious God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, God has power to strengthen you, friends. God has power to enable you to keep walking, to remain strong, to persevere. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, meaning Genesis 3.15 through Malachi, but has now been disclosed, revealed, through the prophetic prophetic writings, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's being made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Where do you see the wisdom of God? Let me just ask you some questions. Who would ever conceive that the hope of the world would be the indignity of a cross? Do you know why people don't become Christians? Because they're proud. Do you know where Christians go wrong when they go wrong? Pride. Who would ever conceive that the hope of the world would be the indignity of a cross? Who would ever conceive that victory could be achieved through flayed flesh and shed blood? Who would ever conceive 
that the overthrow of evil would come through death. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he should repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.